weeks ago, Donnie called Chris at like, I don't know, like 9 o'clock at night. He's like, hey, can I come by and drop something off? And he said, sure. And so she came over with this lovely box of a gift for my husband. And it was a coffee cup. And this coffee cup said, be careful or you will end up in my sermon. Apparently she had seen this coffee cup on Amazon and she was like, Chris has to have this coffee cup. So she bought it for him and came and delivered it at like 9 o'clock at night one night. Um, and if you've been here long at all, then you know that that is very true. That if you hang out with my husband in any way, shape, or form, you'll likely end up in this sermon at some point. Now I have to be honest that I used to think that that was the worst part of being married to a pastor. In fact, I grew up with um, my great aunt and my great uncle telling the same story over and over again. My great aunt, who is a very proper southern lady, um, her husband was a Methodist minister. And he told stories all the time from the pulpit. And he didn't have any problem saying, my wife did whatever. And they were always embarrassing stories. And my aunt Pat, forever, I remember her saying this so many times. Glenn, can't you say this woman I know, someone I met, please quit using my name. And he never ever listened. He still tells stories about my impact. And she graciously, at like 85, still tells him, please can't you use someone else's name. Please. But lately I've decided that there's something that's actually worse than that. I've learned that when you live with a pastor, or maybe it's just my husband, and you have a strong opinion about something, eventually he's going to make you talk about it. And that's just not my favorite thing to do. So last Sunday night, Chris was getting geared up to begin his study for this week, and he just made this offhand comment about, maybe you should preach this week. I mean, you're more qualified than me to talk about this passage. But if you know me very well, you know that my gut reaction was initially, there is no way. But I've been writing the kids' table elementary curriculum to go along with what Chris is talking about so that the kids are right alongside us. And when I started to dig into this passage to write the lesson for the kids, I realized what I'm sure that Chris had already figured out, and that there was a ton in this passage that was very near and dear to my heart. So maybe I could talk about this. When Chris told me he wanted me to teach about creating a system of organization and structure, routine and boundaries that result from the routine and the boundaries that result from those systems, I mean, who wouldn't want to talk about that? Those are some of my absolute favorite things. So I spent all day Monday torn between my fear of public speaking and my love for this passage. And then finally, because of Chris's relentless poking and prodding and peer pressure, I relented, and so now you have to listen to me this morning. So this morning's passage, though it's fairly short, is full of some really great stuff. And I'm kind of excited and a little bit scared to share what I found. We'll be reading in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, if you want to follow along in your own Bible. If not, the words will be on the screen. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, 
We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility, and then the apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone likes this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing that we get to see here, the context, if you will, is that as the church grew, it experienced growing pains. In this case, there were rumblings of discontent. As as this passage says, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So this means that even though the church is only like 10 minutes old, miraculous things are happening all over the place, and thousands of people are being added to the church all the time. And yet, despite all of this, there was people fighting about whether or not things were fair. Now, over the years, something I've learned is an, as an observer of people, for sure, but mostly as a mom, is that any time you have a lot of people, or even just a few people, together in one place for any length of time, there's going to be arguing. I don't know about your house, but in our house, our kids can argue about absolutely anything. For example, this week I've had to help navigate arguments about who would be responsible for filling, refilling animals' water bowls arguments over who was going to help Asher in the bathroom, because apparently no one wants to sit in the bathroom with a three-year-old who likes to talk about poop. <laughs> I've navigated arguments over which of the four identical walkie-talkies is the best. <laughs> Who's going to sweep vacuum, take out trash, dry dishes, put them away? I mean, believe it or not, there have been arguments over who would sit in what seat in the car or at the dining room table. Don't even get me started about electronics or toys. Anybody else heard anything similar? Now, we might like to pretend that this is typical childish behavior, but if we're honest, as adults, our arguments don't get any better. I've been in a few churches that really needed a mom to walk in and tell everyone in the building to sit down and shut up or go to their rooms. Although our arguments might have higher stakes than which seat we sit in at the table, they're really not any different than what we hear from the kids in our lives. We argue over whose sports team is the best, which restaurant makes the best biscuits and gravy, where we want to vacation, how to spend our money, or time, or where to live. We argue over theologies, political ideologies, morals, and work ethic, to name just a few. As a whole, mankind really likes to argue. Now there's some of us, myself included, who will do anything to avoid an argument anything, until we're pushed far enough, that is, and then look out, because we can argue with the best. In my house, when I reach that point where it all boils over, my family calls it letting my Irish out, and it's not pretty. It seems that since the fall, we all have something in us that makes us pit one another against the other. The beauty of this morning's passage, though, seems to be that Luke doesn't really spend too much 
recognized that there was an issue and came up with a plan of action to solve it. It's almost like someone created a perfect bullet point checklist for this to follow. First, call everyone together. Second, point out that they can't do everything. Third, equip the people to solve the problem themselves. Four, choose seven men to do this job. And then five, continue praying and teaching the word. I mean, it's beautiful. Conflict Resolution and Effective Leadership 101, right? Ultimately, what the disciples do here is they structure a system whereby they can continue to do their job and they can give it their full focus. But they were also able to accomplish one of the other important roles that the church was committed to, specifically caring for the widows and orphans in their community. This is brilliant. I love systems. I am constantly searching for the perfect organizational system whereby our house and our farm can run with perfect efficiency. It seems to me that if I were to get everything structured perfectly, then things will run smoothly. Chris has to constantly remind me that there are no perfect systems and there will always be tweaks and adjustments and sometimes my systems will have to be completely scrapped no matter how much time and effort I've put into implementing them. This is really frustrating. <laughs> but the system in this morning's passage must have worked surely, right? I mean, they were supposed to find men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It had to be the recipe for success, right? No more arguments, no more grumbling, and everything was fixed. Except the church was full of humans, just like us. So I think it's safe to assume that just as I have yet to find the perfect organizational structure to make my house and farm run smoothly all the time, even the changes that the apostles make in this morning's passage would quickly need to be tweaked and revisited often. So why did Luke spend just seven short verses telling us the story about a group of Greek Jews being positive that the group of native-born Jews were being treated better than they were? I mean, to me, it sounds an awful lot like, Mom, Isaac had, ten, had a ten-minute turn on the tablet, and I only got nine and a half minutes. I mean, weren't they growing a successful church? There's thousands of people being at it all the time, and even more. If Luke is writing this letter to gather support for Paul, then why would he include a story about something that's mildly trivial and not really necessary to the story? As we try to answer that question this morning, let's start with a short history lesson. And that will help set up this morning's passage. And then we'll get back to just why this story might be so important that Luke felt compelled to tell Theophilus about it. But first we have to establish why are there two separate groups of Jewish believers. Because if we've been reading the story right, then there's only one church at this point, right? I mean, there's not the Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Pentecostals and all of the other. The answer is yes and no. Yes, they were one church, and the one church was really trying really hard to care for its own and to see that there was no needy among them. We could already establish this several times. In fact, he said, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessings upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. 
So we get to see that the church is trying to do the right thing. But Luke tells us that one group of believers was having an issue with another group of believers. Now to really understand why there's already two separate groups of Jewish believers, we have to go back several hundred years to the days of King Solomon. Now Solomon had ruled over a mostly peaceful kingdom, and he had built the incredible temple in Jerusalem that Chris talked about last week. But because his father, David, had subdued so many of the surrounding enemies, Solomon really didn't have to invest many of his resources into military defense, and he was instead able to build a great many things other than the temple. David had saved to provide for the majority of the temple project, but to pay for all of his other building projects, Solomon had allowed a heavy tax burden to fall on on most of the rest of his subjects. But he also did something that was never, ever supposed to happen in Israel. And he allowed for the institution of slavery as a means of both creating a labor force for his infrastructure programs and for controlling the people of conquered lands. If you remember, the Israelites had been forced into slavery in Egypt and had cried out to God for years and years to be free. Now God had used Moses to free them, but over and over and over again in the Torah, as God is telling the Israelites about his justice and mercy that's supposed to be at the heart of their new nation, he constantly reminds them that they had been slaves and they had access to neither justice nor mercy. In fact, if we look back in Leviticus 19.34, we see, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So having just experienced injustice and forced servitude, Israel was supposed to do it differently. They were supposed to be a land that didn't resort to this inhumane system. But under Solomon's rule, they decided instead to inflict upon others the injustice that they themselves had been subject to centuries before. It reads like this. There were still some people living in the land who were not Israelites, including Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These were the descendants of the nations whom the people of Israel had not completely destroyed. So Solomon conscripted them as slaves, and they serve as forced laborers to this day. So this nation that was supposed to be different turned out to be just like every other nation in the world. And this verse in 1 Kings, it just hangs there foreshadowing something terrible. Sure enough, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and the people come to him, and they ask him to please reduce their tax burden and free those who labored in slavery. But Rehoboam refuses, and this single action set into motion a chain of events that split the kingdom of Israel and ultimately the people of God. This one act eventually brings down the entire kingdom of Israel. Now, the northern ten tribes kept the name Israel, while the southern tribes began to be called Judah. Chris have often talked about the Samaritans and the fact that they were were what became of the northern ten tribes that were intermarried and assimilated into the kingdom of Assyria. But there was also a group of people from those northern tribes that, rather than being forced to become Assyrians, were instead carried away as captives to Greece. Because Greece was a very nationalistic people who looked down on the Jews as lesser people, the Israelites weren't assimilated into their new culture. 
And those captives stayed as true to their Jewish faith as they possibly could without access to the temple. So very similar to what Judah would later do when they were taken into captivity to Babylon, these Jews created synagogues and rituals for worship of God in their new land. And they lived their lives always filled with the hope that God would one day bring them back to the homeland that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then later to Moses and the prophets, the kingdom he had finally established through the family of David. So now we have all these pockets full of faithful Jews who establish full Jewish communities that aren't in Israel, but rather in Greece and other foreign lands. And now hundreds of years later, the Romans have conquered and replaced the the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Persians. And they created an incredible system of roads for travel. And it made it possible for ordinary people to have the opportunity and the freedom and the ability to move around in a way that had previously only been an option for those who were either really rich or really adventurous. So many of these Jews who had created their own Torah-based system of worship decided it was time to come back to Jerusalem. They saw this both as an opportunity to better worship and live their lives as worshipers of God, but also as a fulfillment of the biblical promises. The problem was that when they came back, they found out that the Jews who had been left behind really didn't like them. Native-born Israelites often thought that they were better than the Greek Jews, and they didn't like the novelties that had grown into the Greek worship. Maybe the Greeks worshipped guitar instead of a piano, or maybe they wore jeans to church instead of a suit, or worse yet, they preached in a beer shirt. <laughs> I made light of it, but these were real barriers. The Greek Jews didn't speak the same language, and they hadn't been through many of the recent degradations that the native-born Jews had endured. They were different, and the native-born Jews didn't really want to have to share the temple with what they considered to be immigrants who were only taking their precious resources and corrupting their way of worship. So essentially, they worshipped as two totally separate groups who only had to really interact with one another during important festivals. And then Jesus walked onto the scene, and he did things differently. He treated everyone the same, no matter where they were from. Of course, we know the whole story. You know, he died. Then he conquered death when he rose from the grave. And 50 days later, the Holy Spirit shows up. And now this little thing called the church is growing like crazy. But there's only one problem. The hope that's found in Jesus is compelling to both the native Jews and the Greek Jews. Both groups are falling madly in love with Jesus and his message. And it's like this, I have this picture in my head of running to the altar to the front of the church for an altar call to accept Jesus because you're so moved and you're desperate to know him. And the second you get to the altar, you look to your left and you see the person that you can't stand, that person that really, really annoys you and makes you angry, and they're standing right next to you. But they're also weeping. So you feel this immediate camaraderie with them. But then you quickly find out that they don't really necessarily annoy you. Now they're your people, and so you have to figure out what this relationship is going to look like. So in our story this morning, we've got these two groups of people who are together trying to overcome all these old, man-made, ethnic, social, and cultural barriers to become one people 
formed to create conflict and concerns. And I love how real and how human Luke's telling of the story is. Because if these people just suddenly believed in Jesus and they all got along with everyone and everyone loved one another and there was no drama and no conflict and no difficulty, I don't know that they would be able that we would be able to resonate with them. The second some of the people in the church started to grow concerned about favoritism, then it starts to me to sound to me like they were real people. People like the ones that I live with every day. Which brings us back to my original question. Why would Luke want to include this story? Remember last week when Chris talked with us about finding the ethos of a story? Let's see if we can find the ethos of this story. Because I think when we find the ethos, the simple little story starts to change. It becomes more than a quick tale about an argument and a group of seven men who we really don't hear much about for the rest of the Bible. It seems clear from the passage that up to this point, the apostles were the ones that were overseeing the distribution of food. But this morning's conflict forced them to realize that they cannot both hand out food and spend time praying and teaching. Now Jesus had grabbed 12 guys he had spent over three years pouring into them his values and his heart for people and the importance of humility and grace. And he commissioned them, and he told them to go out and spread his message everywhere. I think this morning's passage was maybe the first time that maybe it hit home to the apostles just how big of a job this was going to be. Even with the power of the Holy Spirit and the reality that this was God's plan for centuries, the apostles just seemed to be figuring out that they were going to need help. If the church was going to grow and be healthy, they were going to need a better structure. I find it interesting that Luke didn't tell us if there was actually any favoritism happening. But I find it hard to believe that the disciples, these men who had just spent three and a half years following Jesus, and who were now totally sold out to this life of creating other Jesus followers, were now favoring one group of Jesus followers over another. Could it have been happening? Well, absolutely. But what I love about the fact is that the apostles never even addressed it. Didn't try to deny. They don't defend themselves. They don't accuse anyone of pettiness or jealousy. They don't stand up and scream, I'd like to see you try and do everything we're doing. They simply owned the truth. They couldn't do all of it. Now, Chris and I have been part of ministries in the past where this type of passage has been used as a whip to illustrate to everyone involved that we simply don't have time to deal with, with petty disagreements. Because what is truly important is that we stay on mission. We cannot slow down. We have to keep moving forward. Everyone has a job, and we all just need to focus on our job and leave everybody else alone so we can save the world. But you see, I see something entirely different here. The disciples called everyone together. They stopped. They stopped everything. In the midst of this incredible momentum, they counted this conflict as important enough to stop and create a new structure that would then allow them to proceed in a healthy manner. They recognized they couldn't do everything on their own. They had to create space for others to join with them in this work. In essence, they had to create a boundary where their work ended and someone else's began. Now believe me, it would have been as natural as can be for the apostles to redouble their efforts, make apologies, and work even harder to make sure that the food distribution was fair. They could have said something like, we're the 
the ones that Jesus called to lead this movement, so we have to find a way for the 12 of us to get this done. This is our job. Jesus gave it to us. But I can tell you from bitter experience that this likely would have been that this would have likely been an incredibly natural thing for the apostles to do. And I don't know if you remember last week's message, but Chris taught us about how fear gripped the people as they watched or heard about Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead after trying to look more holy than they were. And when you add in the fact that Peter and John were just flogged for the first time for preaching Jesus, and you can almost sense that there was this perfect storm of tension that could have easily derailed all that God was doing. People were afraid to hang out with Peter and the other apostles in public. The Jewish leaders are beginning to amp up their persecution, and now there's grumblings within the church. Imagine how easily it would have been for the apostles to say something like, The wounds on my back are still stabbed from the beating I just took for Jesus, Ananias and Sapphira are dead, and you're worried that the person in front of you got two chicken patties on their cafeteria tray, and you only got one. But the apostles didn't do that. Instead, they heard this complaint, and in it, they heard people with words of hurt and concern of a normally neglected group who only wanted to ensure care for some of the most vulnerable of their own. And even more, I think the apostles saw that there were major issues in the future if they didn't address this issue well. The apostles knew that there was that the most important thing for them to be focusing on in that moment and then they accepted the barriers that that created. And rather than just pushing through, ignoring, or belittling a group for complaining, they saw it as an opportunity. An opportunity to have both the native-born Jews and the Greek Jews work together to solve a problem. So their solution was to ask the people to find a group of men who could take over the responsibility. But as a result of this, new relationships were formed and new leaders were and this is where I think we find the real ethos of the passage. This passage is often treated as an outline for what the job of a deacon is supposed to look like. In fact, in Chris's language from last week, we often treat this passage like logos or prose discourse. This is the rules. This is how we're supposed to do it. This is the hiring of the very first church staff. And we can tend to use this text like an outline, like a checklist, for how to rightly achieve church growth. We can stress these are clearly outlined roles and proper division of labor and having everyone function in their God-given gifts so that we can succeed and grow and accomplish way more than we ever could alone. And all of that is really great, except that's not the ethos of the passage here. Luke didn't tell us a story about a strategy meeting that the apostles held to figure out their new, new growth program or for their latest outreach strategy to push into the community or the changes that they were going to need to make for the influx of people that were likely they were likely to get after their new project. But what Luke really wanted us to see was that what the disciples thought was most important here wasn't necessarily that the church continued to grow. What he did, what they did want us to see, was that the relationships were between the people. He wanted those relationships to be the most important. It's all about life-giving, beautiful, and yes, messy relationships. The ethos of this passage seems to be that even though the church was growing, and even though the church, and even though miracles were happening, and even though they're making a 
enough of a difference that the Jewish leadership was taking note, the apostles weren't okay with people being or even feeling mistreated. What good is it for us to grow a giant church if people, our people, aren't in healthy, life-giving relationships? You see, we tend to look at this passage as a way to get more people more involved and to set up better structures so the church can grow bigger. But what I think actually happened here is that a church that was already growing like crazy decided to slow down and involve more people to set up better structures so that the church could be more healthy. The apostles wanted everyone to join in on the solution because this was about the health of not just a few, but everyone. They wanted the people to choose men that everyone could trust. The disciples certainly could have chosen those seven men themselves. They could have done personality profiles and assessed giftings. And there are certainly examples of the disciples making other big decisions without the input of the entire church. But this wasn't about starting a new successful ministry to grow the church. This was about everyone feeling heard and loved. So the apostles wanted to include everyone. It says it this way. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. Now, many of the names here are Greek names, meaning it's likely that the people chose guys who represented the Greek Jews. And we even see that at least one of the men chosen wasn't even a Jew, but instead a convert to Judaism. The people didn't just pick seven guys who could run a good food program. They worked together to find men that all of the church could trust so that the real issue could be fixed. Because the real issue wasn't that the church needed a good food program in order to grow. The ethos of the passage seems to indicate that the real issue was that the current structure of the church wasn't supporting healthy relationships. Where the current setup was allowing for people to feel separate and isolated and even cheated, this new, stronger structure was made to feel was made so that everyone could feel supported, cared for, and represented. So how do we respond to this? I mean, what exactly does this have to do with us today in 2021 in Wellsville, Kansas? So when I agreed to speak this morning, I thought I was going to take my nice, neat checklist of structure and organization and leadership and conflict resolution. And I was going to talk to you about how structures and boundaries that we create in our lives help us to be better Jesus followers. And truthfully, those things are true. God is a God of of order. He created the entire universe with care and precision and order. He created beautiful boundaries in nature. And throughout history, we see his plan at work in the systems and structures of this world. I even planned to talk to you this morning about fire to build on what Chris talked about last week. Because, you see, fire is such a great metaphor for the power of boundaries. Because the same fire that can destroy forests and houses and do so much damage, when given the simple boundaries of a metal box, keeps our homes in the winter and saves countless lives. 
were born in Genesis 3. The seeds of our everyday arguments are born right there in Genesis 3. The seeds of my kids fighting over who has to feed the animals, my everyday conflicts are born in Genesis 3. But the promise of the gospel says that we no longer live in Genesis 3. We can choose like the disciples did in our story this morning to stop. We can choose to live in redemption, the redemption that Jesus came to bring us. We can ask ourselves, how do I turn this conflict into an opportunity to deepen the relationship, to deepen relationships? How do I use this to see and to hear the other people in my life? We can choose to hear God's voice in those everyday moments. When our kids are driving us crazy, or our spouses seem like they've lost their minds, or maybe our coworkers are treating us with open hostility, or our church family is ignoring our very real hurts, or the countless other conflicts, arguments, and hurts that I'm missing, we can each hear God's voice telling us it's not good for you to be alone. So the way that I hope we can respond to this message is to learn to search for and then learn, lean into ways to structure our lives, to organize our lives, to set boundaries in our lives, not just so that we can succeed in business or reach our goals or grow a church, but rather that we would do all of those things in ways that draw us deeper into relationship with others. And as we do that, I believe we'll also be drawn deeper into relationship with God. This is really hard for many of us. See, I'm the queen of withdrawing when I'm hurting. I want to run or explode and yell and scream. I have no idea what to do with conflict. I have no idea what to do with all those big emotions. But I stand here to tell you I'm committed to learning because I am choosing to believe the gentle voice of God speaking to me is not good for you to be alone. I can tell you that I fail far more often. I know it can be scary to let go of our need to be right or in control in the midst of conflict and to instead search for the places where we can draw people together. I know there's times where we get lost worrying that our needs won't be met. But I also believe as a church that we can commit to helping one another to find healing that draws us back to each other and back to God. See, we need this. Our kids need this. The world needs this. Will you join me in learning the skills of leading in a relationship rather than settling for conflict? And if you're already good at it, then will you gently help those of us who aren't so good at it? I don't have a nice, neat checklist for you to follow, but isn't that the beauty of a relationship?
the magic of life if you got rid of that. It's it's fantastic, really. I mean, it's it's uh, you, and then um, great, you know, in that crunch time, if you need somebody, you got a deadline coming up, and you need somebody to help you, like in the last twelve hours, that is me, and I'm great in, in the crunch. Um, and a lot of things that stress people out. I don't generally have an issue with um, forgiveness and unforgiveness because I forget about it. I I try to hold a grudge sometimes and I just can't hang on to it. It just I like two weeks later I'm like oh, crap I'm supposed to be mad at that person. Like I just can't hold on to those things. Like, which uh, and I the part of the reason that I um, I'm a decent Bible teacher is because. ADD comes with hyper-focus. You know, that kid that is playing something, you're calling his name, you can't stop playing it. And you're like, hey, hey, hey. You know, all those voices are supposed to go do this time to do something else. I'll add that. When I get into the Bible, I'm going. And I'm, you know, which is awesome. I didn't want to use that. Um, and so having ADD is actually pretty amazing. Until you have to be in a relationship with somebody. And then you hurt people. Because when you're late, they're you're, you're abusing their time, and when you forget to do things, you hurt their feelings. And and when you hyper focus on something and they need you to, to listen to them, you don't. And and so ADD is awesome if you're alone, but we're not created to be alone. I mean, if you've been here long and you use any of our codes, the code to everything at the church is one two one eight. That's the first book, second chapter, eighteen verse. It's not good for me to be alone. We built this church around that reality. We don't think it's good to be alone. A lot of us have that faith is a private thing. My relationship with God is a private thing. It's just me and God, and I've got everything I need. I don't believe that. Because if it was just you and God, and you had this awesome relationship with God, and there was nothing in the way, and you two were so close, God's response would be, it is not good for you to be alone. Because that's what Adam had. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was nothing in the way between him and God. He had unfettered access to the presence of God. God looked at that relationship and said, not good. This is not good. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You are supposed to be connected to other people. Which means conflict. It means we have to work this stuff out. And, and what I love about this is, is these structures that were built into the church. They hired more people. They created a food program. They created a new program in the church. And, and they delineated what the pastoral apostolic role might look like that had never been drawn before. And they're like, hey, it's really important we focus on these things. These are super, super important. And we can feel that temptation to, to get caught up in other things. And if we do these things, we'll suffer. And, and, and a lot goes on there. And it, and it was beautiful. And we could have a tendency to do that mechanically. To go, you know, to, to set a goal for success. We're going to do these things. We're going to succeed. And to do that, we have to create this structure. What I love about this passage is, is they, they did all that, and the purpose for it was we have to take care of people. We have to, we have to do this life together, and to do that without hurting each other, we have to put some structures in place. And that so resonates with me. I make my bed. <laughs> I've never made my bed in my life, and I still have that voice that's like, you're going to get back in that. 12 hours, what is the point of making that right now? You know, I still have that voice. I still don't understand the, the logic behind it. But I live with a woman that doesn't feel like her day is good until the bed is made. And 
And so I've learned, and now I don't feel like my day is right till the bed is made. So, and, and that has nothing to do with me. It has to do with with the fact that I live with someone. I'm in a relationship with someone. I'm in life with someone. It's important to them. And so I've put a structure in my life. I now have a routine in my life that is purely about loving someone else. It's purely about, I want to love you well, just support you, so I'm going to do this thing. I have alarms on my phone. I have all kinds of things built into my life, things that I would never in a million years do, because that's just not me, and it means nothing to me. Uh, and But I do it because of the relationship. I structure things in my world for her. And, and I think that is what we do here too. We're getting ready to start small groups and it's, and it's because we know a couple hours on Sunday morning is not enough. It's not enough for us to be in a relationship together and to love each other and to, and to do life together the way we're supposed to do life. I spent weeks and weeks and weeks assuming Sean hated me. He just sat there looking grumpy. <laughs> and I would look out and he looked at me like he didn't fully trust me and it was weird and then we had dinner with him and Sean is like my brother we're like I love Sean because we got some time outside of church together and that's important and so we're, we're and we're trying to do it well we're bringing Reg on to help uh, equip our leaders and, and resource them so they have good materials and good things and, and we're going to try and do it structured, and the, and the heart of it, the reason we want to do it is this passage. The reason we want this structure, we want to do it well, we want to do it right, is because we want to love people well. We don't want people to, I got, a, I got an email from, from Allison, it was like, how do I get more plugged in? I need more, I need people, I need people in my life. And we had to have, I was over there had a blast, and, and, and I feel like this passage, I feel like there's grumblings underneath, like, like I don't feel connected enough, I don't feel loved enough, I don't feel, you know, like I have my people that we have to fix that. We have to fix that. It's, it's something we have to address. And so I feel like this passage, I love that Esther threw out the relationship side of this passage because I feel like that's what's happening at TCC. We're, we're trying to create more structures and better flow and better um, organizational, I don't even know how to talk about it, it's just not what my brain does. But we're, we're trying to create these things so that we can love each other better. And I think that's what they did, they did here. They had some people that weren't feeling loved, weren't feeling heard, uh, weren't feeling recognized. And so they stopped everything. They go, that is not okay. It is not okay for you to come to, come to church and feel alone. That should not happen. And, and so they, they shut everything down for a second and said, how do we fix this? How do we, how do we, how do we make sure that everybody feels heard and loved? And so... Uh, I agree with Esther that, that we would respond to this by, by leaning in. Give, give it a shot. Like, even if you were like, I can do this moment, but I don't have time. Come to something. Connect with someone. Um, and it's not just because you need it. It's because they need it. It's not good for them to be alone. They need your face. They need your voice. They need you to hear them and see them and, and, and love on them. So, um, let's go to the table.